From Impact Alpha Media, this is Returns on Investment, a show about the impact investing marketplace. Live, on tape, from New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the financial technology company LiquidNet. With me here in New York is Imogen Rose Smith, who's a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us from the San Francisco Bay Area by the magic of podcasting technology uh, is David Bank, who is editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. Good to be together again. Uh, We'll see about that. On today's show, we're going to focus on the scope of impact investing. We were all recently in Baltimore for the Mission Investors Exchange biannual gathering. Now, biannual, that means every other year, right? In this case, it does. Every other year, not not twice a year. Yeah. Mission Investors Exchange biannual gathering. Uh, And this is really a gathering of uh, several hundred folks who are active in impact investing from the foundation world and beyond. Uh, and it really started as a network of foundations learning how to do uh, PRIs or program-related investments, but it's really expanded to those who are trying to think about deploying a full range of assets that uh, foundations have. So Darren Walker, who is the president of the Ford Foundation, uh, spoke at the opening plenary, and I think we're going to listen to a little bit of that right now. What I say to my trustees is that we are in a historic moment in this country and in philanthropy. And if we believe that our old behaviors and our old ways of doing things will continue to make us relevant and impactful, we are kidding ourselves. And therefore, we must change fundamentally, particularly if we are a foundation asserting that inequality is one of our nation's and the world's greatest challenges. We must interrogate our own behaviors our own practices and internal policies. And in doing so, what we have learned, in doing so, what we have learned, and again, I can't speak for other foundations, what I have learned is that we are woefully, woefully failing. I led a national effort to ban the box around our criminal, that came out of our work on criminal justice reform. We have a box at the Ford Foundation. Like most institutions do. It's not, we have no policy to ensure inclusion. We spend millions of dollars every year on vendor relationships. We have no policy to ensure that women and minority vendors are, you can just, so when we looked across our own institution, and that led me, as we looked at our, our $12 billion endowment, to ask ourselves, what is our policy? And our policy is that we, save for a few screens, seek to maximize returns so that we can have more money in our endowment and more money to give away ultimately. I do not think that is defensible today. I do not think that as a policy that is defensible. <laughs> however, however, we cannot, we cannot kid ourselves in, in not accepting that these, this idea of impact investing has been framed as oppositional to our core endowment investment. And as long as we allow that to be the way this is framed and interpreted and discussed, we will fail at scaling and taking this to the kind of adaptation that we need in order to have real impact. So what we have to do, what what I have to do, and what I have been on a journey with my own board in doing is, is interrogating these questions. 
And it's one th we're really good at the Ford Foundation at putting out really good rhetoric. But we have to earn that rhetoric, and we have to align our actions with that rhetoric. And we, we're going to be challenged to do that. Wow, that was extraordinary. Darren was on fire, and I guess he's been on fire about this question of, of where the foundations can really play here. I mean, the, he's really opened up. They haven't done it, of course, yet, but the, the, the letter he sent a few months back and Ford has really opened up this question, not only of the PRIs, as you were talking about earlier, Brian, but of, of the actual, the, the whole endowment of, the, of U.S. foundations, which totals something like $800 billion dollars, which sounds like a big number. Um, uh, maybe it's not in the larger scheme of things, but the notion that the, they would actually think about putting their endowments, which have already gotten you know, tax break, to work on the missions that they're already pledged to, to work on, doesn't sound like a radical notion, but in the foundation world, it is pretty radical. And Ford is, is one of the few talking about that. Kresge's made some moves towards that. Others have made some, some moves as well. But David, explain why it is that that is such a radical action for foundations to take. I think people often who don't live in this world don't understand what the divide or the conflict is. Well, the traditional, you know, I actually covered foundations for a time at the Wall Street Journal, and actually I didn't know much about them before then. And But as I got into it, there's a very traditional divide. It's the same divide in, in you know, in the rest of the financial world that, you know, they make money. Uh, they make as much money as they can on the on on the, in the in the markets of various sorts with their endowments, and then they spend down, as they say, um, or or pay out about five percent a year through their grants. And so the notion is, let's make as much as we can on the investment side, and then that gives us as big a grant budget as possible on the grant side. And that's how foundations have been organized since the days of you know Rockefeller and Carnegie and and all those guys. And what that amounts to is you know what now has become about a $45 billion grants budget for U.S. foundations, which again sounds like a big, big number, but as they'll tell you, you know, it, you know, barely keep the lights on in the, you know, U.S. schools for a, a day or, or a week. So it's really not very much money that's going from this whole world of philanthropy to actual organizations making change. So the question comes up, what about that bigger pot of money, that $800 billion? So what the... People on the foundation side, the guys investing that $800 billion will say is, hey, kids, you over there in the programming office, let us do the investing stuff. You guys don't really know anything about finance. You don't know anything about capital markets. Leave us with the money. You can then spend the money that we make. But the more that you meddle with us, the less money that's actually going to be available for you to do the good work that you're doing. Yes, you've exactly encapsulated the, the argument, which is why the program folks actually started on this other category of investments called program-related investments. And again, as you say, for people outside the wor this world, these acronyms are confusing, but program-related investments come from that program side. They come from that much smaller grants budget, effectively. Um, and they basically were the program people who were in interested in issues about women or healthcare or the environment or what have you, those people started saying, oh, there might be market-based solutions to some of these problems. Maybe we could invest in in companies. You know, it started out as maybe we could make a loan to the nonprofit to buy a building or whatnot, and that would get paid back. Increasingly, it's become, 
a place where foundations can actually do some pretty innovative and experimental things like investing in, you know, early stage biotech startups or guaranteeing loans of various sorts to to bring in, you know, mainstream investors or, or, or commercial lenders. So the program related investing world has gotten very active recently. But again, that's a very, very small pot of money compared either to the overall foundation endowments or certainly to the overall capital markets. Just to be clear, when we're talking about program-related investments, PRIs, those have to demonstrate a charitable intent. Uh, and so they, because they come out of that 5% charitable spend that foundations are required to do, uh, they uh, oftentimes are below market or have to demonstrate that they have a charitable uh, impact or charitable intent on the part of the foundation. So those aren't market rate uh, investments. And this gets in, and this gets into sort of where I think one of the frustrations with the investor institutional investor community comes. If if I'm going out and I'm making investments, I'm doing deals and part of the objective is to be below market rate. Then from an institutional investor perspective, that's not an investment, right? It's a transaction you're putting together a structure. But I think think one of the things that's happened here is we've empowered the programming related community of foundations to start talking about investing, which arguably is a good thing to do. However, we haven't given them the same mandate or the same, frankly, level of capital market sophistication that we demand of the investment office. So when these guys show up in the investment office with a bunch of PRIs, the investment office turns around and looks at them and thinks that they're out of their mind. Right. So and I, it, it's important because, you know, you, you know, we know there is so forty five billion dollars available of potential PRI money. There's eight hundred billion dollars total foundation assets out there. There are trillions of dollars that need to go into social issues, climate issues over the next 15 years if we're going to achieve the change that we know we need to achieve. So. And we're talking about not just galvanizing the Ford Foundation and the Ford Foundation's investment office, we're talking about galvanizing trillions of dollars in institutional assets. And there is a feeling that the programming guys, even the president of the Ford Foundation, is not necessarily the person to lead that charge if they can't speak to investors. If the Ford Foundation literally cannot walk down the hallway and have a conversation with its investing office. How is the Ford Foundation going to convince the trillions of dollars that needs to move? Okay, I agree with the intent, but I do need to clarify one thing, which is that the program-related investing side, as you say, because it's tax, you know, the money has already received its tax deduction and it's charitable money does need to demonstrate charitable intent and 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 the foundations are very careful to make sure that their legal department signs off that they've that they've documented that charitable intent and how it's going to be measured and all it doesn't say the the IRS rules don't say that you can't make money on those investments they just say that can't be your primary intent so some of these investments in fact have made quite a bit of money others have lost money but but the point is the returns are not the primary intent. The primary intent is the charitable philanthropic purpose. Now that said, they're not intended to be demonstrating good returns in order to be model uh, role models for other 
investors. What that pot of money is, is very flexible money, either on taking greater risks, accepting lower returns, having longer lockups and, and lower less liquidity that make kinds of deals work, that bring in other money. Literally, sometimes a 1% loan is low-cost capital that frankly boosts the returns of other limited partners in a fund. Sometimes there's some risk credit enhancement on a bond that lets you know commercial investors invest in charter schools, that sort of thing. So it's not because that investment makes such a killing and that brings other investors. It's because that investment is flexible capital that can go into a deal and make that deal work. So that, I think, is the distinction of program-related investments uh, at the least. And I think that is that's the power of that capital, the potential power of that capital. It can go, it can go in. It can be early stage money. It can take risks that institutional investors, other investors aren't willing to take. The problem I think is that because we're not, because the PRI guys and the investing guys aren't talking to one another in the same institution, let alone anywhere else, that that capital rarely, if ever, is getting stacked up the way that it needs to get stacked up so that it's truly effective. So not only are we failing to really galvanize the people on the institutional side, but we're missing the true power and the potential of that early stage capital. Well, I would I would just argue, you know, just to, to see the glass half full, that there's an incredible amount of activity around this right now, and that in fact some of the leading foundations are being quite proactive in in stacking up the capital in just that way. We've just finished a a big project uh, looking at the Gates Foundation uh, PRI portfolio, and they've been pretty much out front. In fact, at some level, in front of the the regulations in terms of the way that they've deployed that capital. You can see that series of stories on the Stanford Social Innovation Review site uh, under Making Markets Work for the Poor. The MacArthur Foundation, you know, Kresge, McKnight, you know, others are now taking a very uh, aggressive and ambitious and, and I would say innovative um, uh, a view of, of how to do this. So, you know, while you're, you're right about the whole uh, range of the foundations generally, there are some outliers that are doing some good work. Yeah, and I think that one of the, the, I think, proof points here is the Mission Investors Exchange Conference itself. So two years ago at the conference, again, because it's a biannual conference, so it happens every other year, uh, two years ago there were about 350 participants. This year there were 550, and they sold out at that. And and the, the theme of this year's conference was called Seizing the Momentum. And I think that the, the, the sense that I got, the energy uh, at the conference, was that this is no longer about uh, preaching uh, to, to new people to say, to new foundations and to others to say, you should do this uh, and that this is the smart way to do it, to, to think about, to that make that call to foundations to get off their assets and to really think about how they deploy their full spectrum of capital for social impact. And I think that uh, now the case has already been made and, and enough critical mass of foundations uh, don't need to be convinced to invest their capital in a holistic way. And we're now transitioning from the you should do this to, well, here's how to do it. And I think that we're going to see greater and greater momentum. And I think that, you know, you have 250 or so foundations who are part of the Mission Investors Exchange. That's going to grow. But it, it's not so much about getting more on board, but getting those who are on board, activated, uh, getting them equipped, uh, training up the staff. Because again, Historically, you would have separate investment teams from program staff, and, and never the two should meet. And, and now it's, it's about how do we uh, equip all those who are doing this 
uh, with the right tools and the right resources. And one of the big things I think is needed, and this point was made at the conference, is the need for intermediaries. And I think there's going to be increasingly more people who have expertise at connecting people who have the capital with people who have the ideas and the projects to deploy that capital in this way. And I think you're going to see that grow. But there is also a little bit of sort of a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Right. That on the one hand, yes, you know, that's the like, theme of my life. <laughs> people like Amidia and Heron already walking and Gates, you know, already walking the walk on this. Even those just doing work on the MRI side are doing excellent work. And there's many really good, talented people. But, you know, how would you know, go back to what Darren Walker was saying? Right. And again, Darren Walker was brought into the Ford Foundation in 2013 to sort of really shake the place up and make those that, that leap forward that they perceive as having to happen. But if you're the CIO of a large foundation, certainly if you're the CIO of the Ford Foundation, how do you feel when Darren Walker gets up and says that? Like, you've been doing your job. You think you're a good guy. And you have these people basically accusing you of not being good. And I think that they're that... not saying you're not being good. They're saying you can be better. And I think the call to arms is not that what you're doing is terrible. You know, if you have, you might have a great uh, program strategy, you might have great grant uh, portfolio. Uh, but it's saying it's making a call to arms, saying that you can do better, and here's how, and we're doing it. Uh, you know, the Ford Foundation has been doing PRI since the late 1960s. I mean, this is not this is not uncharted territory. There there is a track record here. Uh, and that we're going to be able to attract not just the $800 billion that's being actively invested by endowments of foundations, but the other trillions of dollars of institutional asset owners. And we'll, we'll be able to provide that capital that but helps the bring found, in those But other the Ford Foundation has been doing PRI since the 1960s. It's not doing a good job of convincing the investment community that, that those are investable opportunities. So, you know, again, from a, if I'm in the endowment office and you turn around and you say that, I don't tell you how to do your job don't tell me how to do my job right there's there's a linguistic and a communications problem there that i you know i was very positive about impact investing a couple of years ago you know like when rockefeller brothers decided they were going to go on impact i think there is a lot of positive momentum there but i'm not convinced that we're now having the right conversation i don't think this is turning institutional investors on i worry that what daryl walker is saying and i like daryl walker but i worry that he's turning the investment office off by being sort of a confrontational in what he says. Well, remember that there's a, you know, this is all, as you said, inside of a certain kind of bubble because the only reason why there's all these restrictions both on PRIs and MRIs and all this talk is because this is tax deductible money that's been, you know, that's got some level of, of scrutiny over it from the IRS in terms of its charitable purpose. There's a whole new flavor of money that we've talked about on the show in terms of LLCs and other vehicles that uh, Mark Zuckerberg has used, that uh, Steve Jobs' widow Lorraine Powell Jobs is is using at the Emerson Collective, that the Omidyar um, Network has used for some time. If you don't take the charitable deduction, then you have much more flexibility about what you can do with that money. You can follow things. You know, these guys are being very aggressive in clean tech, in, um, in, in fintech, in ag tech, in ed tech. And, and they would argue, you know, getting kinds of impact and getting returns that will demonstrate to other investors that following, you know, solving big challenges, um, uh, you know, are big business opportunities. That, when that idea takes hold, 
you know, then then the investment guys will be more than happy to put their money to work on these big challenges. Right. So I think it comes back to seizing the momentum and and building out the proof points that this approach of full stacks of capital, you know, the different types of capital in these deals playing different roles. I think that's going to build and, and, and build the momentum and build the track record. And one of my uh, things that came up uh, during the conference was a recent New Yorker cartoon. It was a three-panel cartoon where you have somebody uh, walking down the sidewalk, marching triumphantly, saying, the fierce urgency of now. Then the second panel has somebody, the same person, standing, looking outside, wistfully outside of a window, sipping a cup of tea. And the caption is, the tempting promise of tomorrow. And then finally, the third panel has that same person on a couch under a blanket saying, the soothing vagueness of some time. So if the theme of the Mission Investors Exchange Conference was seizing the momentum, are we somewhere between the fierce urgency of now or the soothing vagueness of some time? Where are we on that spectrum, Imogen? See, Darren Walker was very clear that we're at the fierce urgency of now. And I respect him for his urgency. I just don't know how he is going to change that dialogue. And maybe the answer is that he doesn't look internally, he looks externally. Right, that he brings in investors and stakeholders from the broader community and that that is the role that Afford and the foundations can play in achieving that change because it's not coming from the investment office. David, are we at the, the fierce urgency of now or are we at the soothing vagueness of some time? Well, as I mentioned, I spent a few years covering the foundation world. I would say that the bulk of it is really in the soothing vagueness of, of, of some time. I'm, I'm sorry to, to say that. But I don't think, as Imogen said, that the answer comes from that, that world. I think that um, the, the pioneers and the innovators there will be very helpful and will do some exciting things and, and break some new ground. And that really the, the change is going to come um, in the markets themselves, and so the the onus is on you know the entrepreneurs, the the investors, um, to uh, prove that there are um, that like we said, big big challenges uh, mean big opportunities. That's great. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. If you like the show, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts these days. And be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. It really helps other people discover our show. If you don't like the show, maybe just keep it to yourself. Just kidding. You can always send us an email with any comments or suggestions. We love hearing from you. You can reach us at info at impactalpha.com. For more on the Impact Investing Marketplace, follow us on Twitter at impactalpha and visit us at impactalpha.com. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter to keep in touch. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. In New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank and Imogen Rosemith, thanks so much for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to talking again soon.